Hello listeners and welcome to the AfriWeta podcast where we look to celebrate African history, people and culture by telling our story. As always, our hope is that it fills you with enough curiosity to go and do your own deeper research. Karibu to any new listeners to the Afriwetu to world. We invite you to check out previous Afriwetu episodes which can be found on this podcast platform. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today, we're headed to East Africa for part one of the mighty Buganda Kingdom. A shout out to my East Africans out there. Afriwetu has landed on your shores. Before we begin, please remember to visit us on our socials. Our handle is at Afriwetu, where we do post interesting facts, stories, updates and if you require links for further study for all you lovely people but for now just sit back and enjoy the journey So as we gather around, take out your maps, Afriwatu, as we head over to the shores of Lake Nalubale. The Buganda Kingdom stretched across from the northwest to the eastern shores of Lake Nalubale. Today, it is actually still in existence in the modern country of Uganda and currently sits at 61,403 square kilometers. And at its height, it commanded and dominated an even larger area that encompassed the islands within the lake and it collected tribute from the civilizations in the region. It was a powerhouse of a kingdom with her effects felt all the way across to the East African shoreline. As with anything else, one has to start at the very beginning. And with the Buganda Kingdom, the beginning is one of the many African civilizations with such a rich backstory from myth to anthropology. So the story. With the Buganda Kingdom, its beginnings revolved around the legend of Kintu. The origins encompass such a rich and diverse collection of stories that in all honesty, Afriwetu can only scratch the surface. There shall be another special episode out on Kintu himself later, and still just a snippet of what is a very, very, very dope legend. It will not be one to miss. For today, we shall have a cursory look at the Kintu story with a mix of folklore and anthropology thrown in. So, as I said, there are a number of variations of the Kintu story and in the course of this kingdom, we shall come across one or two of them. For now, we shall look at the story of Kintu and Nambi and it goes something like this. Kintu was a traveler and in the course of his travels, he met the beautiful goddess princess, Nambi. Kintu 
fell in love with her and wanted to marry her, as you do. But there was an ever so slight hurdle. I mean, she was the daughter of the king of heaven, Gulu. And Gulu was not in any way going to allow some mere mortal, a human, to marry his precious child. So, cue impossible tasks set for Kintu to prove his worth, and Gulu was probably hoping this mortal would give up or be mortally wounded in the process, but no. Kintu not only accepted the challenges, but he completed each and every task he was set, winning her hand, and Gulu had no option but to agree. With his new bride, Kintu went back to his home and together they were to become the founders of the more powerful Buganda kingdom as we know it today. But they did not come back to the lands empty-handed. They brought with them crops, which then set the tone for a heavily agricultural society. One that is well known is the mighty plantain. Quick sidebar, if you haven't yet, Please do yourself a favor and get some atoke proper, not those fake knockoffs, the one made with peanut sauce in banana leaves that just melts in your mouth. Anyway, outside of crops, they also brought livestock, a sheep, a goat, a cow, as well as a fowl. However, amidst all these good things, they had one other less welcome guest, Walumbe, also known as Death. So Kintu and Nambi settled in and in time expanded their family with three children. For starters, life was good. But then this was disrupted by Walumbe. So Walumbe was actually Nambi's brother and he wasn't a pleasant being by all accounts. He demanded to have one of their children given to him. Of course, the parents refused and dismissed him. He was not happy and he threatened to kill all their children as a punishment. They dismissed this too and proceeded to live their lives with Nambi having more and more children. Walumbe, not one to give up, came and asked again and he was again rebuffed. He had claimed a right to them as their maternal uncle, but he was informed that only his father, Gulu, could demand the right to any children. Seeing as he was not going to get what he wanted, Walumbe, using his powers as death, started to kill the children. Kintu tried to capture him and stop this, but failed. And it is said that this is how death came into the human world. My Baganda people, there are a number of interweaving stories about Kintu and his adventures and the backstory of Nambi, of Bemba, and all the moral lessons that surround these origins. We shall explore some of them in the Kintu legend episode, but it would really be great to hear from you to incorporate your versions in that same episode. So please let us know through our email address. Now to the origins, which go way back, so far back, it predates the Kintu and Nambi story. 
Before what we know as Buganda came about in the 17th, 18th century, the area was home to a number of smaller settlements that were linked on the basis of kinship. In recent years, the archaeological and anthropological findings studying ancient shrines in Busiro, it has been suggested that the rituals and traditions of these inhabitants could be traced, get this, all the way back to the Iron Age. It has been argued that it is reasonable to assume that similar structures must have existed in Buganda as the rituals within the kingdom are too intricate to have been the product of or emerged in the previous centuries, but can only point to ones designed and practiced over a much longer period. Before we even get to the Kindu and Nambi period, still a few centuries before them, they're the oral traditions, stories of when the people were led by five elders making up the five clans, the Fumbe, the Lugave, Nonge, Nzaza, and Nyoni. These traditions date back to about 1000 AD, according to the historian Nsimbi. And then we fast forward to the 13th and 14th century, to the Kintu and Nambi era. It is then we start to hear the first reports of those who migrated into the lands from the east northeast. This group of people settled and added their number to the initial five clans, and a joined up population was formed. This new crew grew and formed into what was to become the first steps of the Buganda Kingdom. The newcomers brought with them some real value add, not just numbers. They brought the knowledge and practice of farming, they had specialized skills such as the use of bark cloth, iron making as blacksmith, and with this came know-how on both agricultural tools and weaponry. This led to a vibrant economy and the scaling up of the burgeoning kingdom. So slowly but surely, Buganda was growing. It was still subject to and smaller than her neighbor, the more powerful and influential Bunyoro kingdom. She was impacted by Bunyoro's political changes and whims. A classic example of what this looked like was in the 15th, 16th century, Buganda was attacked by the Nilo-Saharan people of Bunyoro, led by the Bito dynasty ruler, Chimera. He conquered the lands and installed as rulers his own new dynasty, the Bito dynasty. A political and societal and military shift in the Buganda kingdom. The emergence to the Buganda we know only happened at least 100 years later, in the 16th and 18th century. To become the powerhouse it became, it had mushroomed pretty fast with a strong political and expansionist ruling clan. It had formed a centralized system of state which is focused on not only simply conquest but on wealth building and continued on this trajectory reaching its peak as one as truly one of the most powerful kingdoms in the region by the mid 19th century <laughs> So as we segue nicely into governance, this centralized system, which had been built over decades, so we find it had a really stratified governance system. Starting at the very top, we had the leader, the Kabaka. The Kabaka himself was selected from a dynastic family and held a lot of power and influence both politically and economically. The Kabaka's role had evolved over the years to become this powerful figure. 
That being said, the foundation of their power was based on a cooperative and collaborative power system, that of heterarchy. A new term I learned which refers to a complex adaptive system of governance, an order with more than just one governing principle. See, you learn a lot here in Afriwetu. In relation to Buganda, the kingdom's cooperative governance was practiced by the balancing out of clan-based power and politics. The Kabaka was thus held to account through the various offices of powerful political authorities and figures in order to manage and temper his power. These powerful figures included the Namashole and the Lubuga, the royal women who sat with the governance structure. There was no royal clan and so Akabaka rose to prominence based on their matrilineal clan support and the greater chance of a prince to become a Kabaka would be when he was supported by his mother's clan. This also meant in practice that any prince had a chance to rule. In line with this, women were held in esteemed regard in the Buganda kingdom and the two most influential being the Kabaka's mother, the Namasole, and the official wife, the Lubuga who was selected from the royals once he had ascended to the throne. In reality, the Lubuga wasn't his actual wife. She instead was his kin, so like a sister, a half-sister, etc., who then held this ritual position. Over time, though, these women's roles were diminished in the beginning by the very serious disruption in the 19th century and then finished off by the onset of the very regressive colonial mindset, coming as they did from where women were not respected as they were in very many African societies. And we see the impact of this to this day. This complicated deconstruction of the power of the African woman is a much deeper discussion, which others have had a much better grasp and content about. So please go and do your own deeper research. But back to our kingdom. We shall meet and spend time with these women in the next Buganda episode as they truly do deserve their own space. Now let's go back to the rest of the governance systems and those that were in place by the latter 18th century. Alongside the Kabaka and with equal status to his was the Katikiro, the chief minister, whose power was truly comparable almost to the Kabaka himself. Religion and rituals played a key role in the kingdom. The sacred shrines and temples were revered, as were those who were in charge of them. Enter the royally appointed Kimbugwe, who was the keeper of the Kabaka's umbilical cord. And not to be confused with the Kabaka Kimbugwe who ruled in the 17th century. I know, I know, random facts. Still in the theme of shrines, we then come to the next level of key roles in the government, the Mugema. So this role was linked to the Velvet Monkey Clan, and it was one of the examples of how specific clans had defined roles and functions. This one in particular had, as one of its designations, held a territory which housed the royal shrines. We shall uncover more about the clans in a later episode, so stay tuned. When it came to the Mugema himself, he was a key advisor who was in charge of the princes, all of whom, as we remember, were potential Kabakas. 
Then when one of them was chosen to be so, he was not just instrumental in the installation, he was also seen as a symbolic father of the Kabaka, the one who provided wise counsel, and the prime minister of the deceased Kabakas. Next level down were the chiefs, and of them, the Saza were the highest ranking ones, ruling over their own regions. Following them were the Bakungu, who were within the Saza structures. They were the bureaucrats and they came during Chimera's era, the title being introduced as a reward mechanism for those who had been loyal to him in his expeditions. The Bakungu left the sub-counties and they mostly came from the noble houses and the royal family. Then the level just under the Bakungu were the Batongole. They controlled the smaller areas within the sub-regions of the kingdom. This is the overall and general structure. There were additional systems within the governance setup that added more effective checks which contained and curbed the Kabaka's power. But now, right before we actually head over to the next section, the Noble Houses, I wanted to share an interesting closing note for this particular session. section. So in some accounts and at a cursory glance, it was Chintu, the founder, who set the basic structure of the kingdom, from its boundaries to its political structures. Reading further and digging deeper, we find other sources that speak of other key contributors to the system. One of the major names is Chimera. He was a leader who led the Bunyoro invasion of Buganda in the very early years and the founder of the Bito dynasty that ruled for a very significant period. He's credited with establishing much of the system we've just heard of, as well as reducing the power of the clans within political rule. Now, with that in mind, let's move over to meet the noble houses. Cool? So, as with all noble houses in the world, there's always a level of drama, mischief, and an element of mayhem. And the Baganda are no different. Afriwetu, I will leave you to decide from this last section which falls under what category. But let's start with a fun fact about the importance of the women in Buganda. For Baganda royals in particular, they were identified and their lineage determined by their maternal clan. And if you all remember, we said that the Kabaka's mother, the Namasole, held a key and equally influ influential role in his government. Therefore, when one was vying to be a Kabaka, despite this being through the paternal line, they would turn to get support from their mother's clan members. Right? Okay. So now let's go back a bit to Kintu and Nambi. After we left them, things got quite tense between the two of them, following her betrayal with another man. And then to make matters worse, Kintu's close friend kept this away from him and was killed for this betrayal of trust. As a result of both instances, Jintu left and was never to return home. His children searched for him everywhere, but it was in vain. And when they finally admitted he was gone forever, the elder son, Chua, declared himself the new ruler. This proclamation wasn't without its detractors, but due to his superior weaponry and power, his brothers having no choice 
acquiesced and the Chua dynasty became the ruling dynasty. Oral tradition then links this story to that of the following generations of royalty. We then hear of the next significant shift, which was the invasion led by Chimera, whom we mentioned earlier a number of times. This story has a number of variations around who he was, and one of the narratives actually links him to the Chua dynasty. In this version, it is said that his mother came from this noble house, that she was a royal woman from Chua Nabaka, and she had been forced to abandon him for various reasons. But then what happened is that he was found by a noble family who then went on to raise him as their own. Chimera was said to have known of his true heritage and when he was of age, he mounted a campaign to Buganda to claim his hereditary rights from an unscrupulous usurper. And upon his success, his Bito dynasty was established. So as we move from Chua to the Bito dynasty, then comes the next major shift, which speaks to the more recent, recent being a relative term as it is still, you know, over hundreds of years, um, list of Kabakas. We shall highlight a few who Afri Wetu found interesting to share, and namely these were Kabaka Ndalua, Mawanga, Kamanya, and Suna II. But I want to just say that this is a very, very, very subjective list. And as we only have time for them today, so please go and find out about the other Kabakas with your own deeper research. Okay, let's head over for a quick sail through, through these Kabakas. Kabaka Ndaula. He's the one who said to have stratified the governance of the kingdom. It is he who is credited with separating the two powerful bodies of church and state. Because of him, the Kabakas were no longer required to prove divine authority to rule. He devolved his religious duties to one of the princes, one of his sons, and it is actually said that this then became an official practice that continued with subsequent Kabakas from this prince's lineage. Then you had Kabaka Mawanga. He had a key role in expanding the Buganda Navy, famed for being a formidable and strategic warrior king who won key battles in the region and increased Buganda's wealth by claiming the spoils of war. We shall hear more about that when we look at the expansion and navy in part three. Yes, it is indeed a three-part series. Kabaka Mawanga appears on this list not just for that, but also for the interesting stories about his character and the drama surrounding him. One version is the narrative of his being a ruthless and cruel ruler, and that in his rise to power, he killed his brother and tried to do the same to a sister, but that she and his other siblings escaped to neighboring Bunyoro. But we find the Mawanga story wasn't so straightforward though. And this was an alternative version that I found I wanted to share. So what had happened was, one day Mawanga met a ritualist called Mwanje in the forest. One day 
Mwanga met a ritualist called Mwanje in the forests. Mwanje claimed to be able to reach Chintu, the ancestor, and was willing to arrange the same for Mwanga. Obviously, Mwanga said yes. Mwanje then got a visit from Chintu, who agreed to meet Mwanga under very strict conditions. That only the Kabaka Endege, his queen's sister, would get an audience. Mawange announced this landmark visit to his high-level courtiers and also warned them not to follow them as per his instructions. Well, one failed that test. When Mawanga and Dege finally arrived at Chintu's designated compound and were let in, Senkoma, the Katikiru, appeared. He had done the exact opposite of the instructions. Chintu was not pleased and after sharp words to the Kabaka turned and left and he was never ever seen again. The Kabaka and Queen's sister were grieved and incensed in equal measure. She killed Senkoma for this act of disobedience, a justified act. In other versions, it was the killing of Senkoma out of an act of impulsive anger plain unjustified murder that was the cause of Chintu's separation from the Kabaka. But either way, this act was a turning point for Moanga, who then it is said after this became the cruel tyrant. All roads really led to that being the case. And as such, despite whatever rationale there was, he is not remembered very kindly. And when he eventually died, it is said he was not accorded a royal shrine. Afriwatu, the descendants of this line, it would be great to have your version of the traditions of Mawanga. So please let us know via email. Then we travel through the ages and land at the next Kabaka, Kabaka Kamanya. He was known for being key in further increasing the territories of Uganda, mainly towards the West. He was also fighting internal conflicts, ruling during a turbulent time of rebellion within the kingdom. He responded to these by spilling a lot of royal blood. It was quite something because he killed his own sons, other princes, chiefs, as well as any who are part or even perceived to be part of these rebellions. Basically anybody who is suspected of being disloyal to him. So it was a bit brutal. Next and our last Kabaka for today is Kabaka Suna II. He was one of, the, of Kamanya's sons who had managed to survive his father's executioner. He, like his father, also extended Buganda's territory. He also expanded the military to becoming one of the most powerful forces in the regions with thousands, some say 50,000 soldiers. He was also the Kabaka who allowed the Arabs to enter Buganda for the first time, which impacted not just the Buganda trade, but also its weaponry. This was a significant shift in foreign and domestic policy, and the impact will be seen when we look again at trade and demise in later episodes. He was succeeded by his son, one of the most well-known and famous Kabakas of the later centuries, Kabaka Mutesa I, whom we shall meet in the third part of this kingdom. Yep, I said it again. Anyway, as I said, this is such a teeny tiny sample of the Uganda noble houses. The current king's list 
stands at 36 at the time this episode was recorded. So it is really not possible for Afriwet to go through each and every one of them. But each and every one of them has such an interesting story. But as I said at the start, please make sure you go and read more as the Royal House is still very active in Uganda with such great and rich history to share. And now let's go over to the last very brief section, which fittingly is around what happened when the Kabakas left the mortal realm. And then we close part one of this civilization. The royal tombs. Like in very many of our African traditions, the respect held for those who pass on and onto the next realm, the ancestors, is something that is deeply understood and honored from the average person to royalty. The Baganda Kabakas not only had special ceremonial rights, but actually were considered to still hold considerable power and influence as ancestor spirits. Akabaka had several rites performed before, during, and after he was buried. Special rites were performed at his burial site, which then became a royal shrine. He would have been laid to rest, his body intact, apart from his jawbone, which would be removed and buried elsewhere. So on the curious case of the jawbone, it was thought that the deceased Kabaka's power and influence were still high immediately after his death and so still present in the mortal world. They were still rulers in their own right, this has to be understood. So what this meant was that his body couldn't be left whole and especially not with his voice. And so in order to prevent him from speaking, the jawbone was physically separated from his body. So that it was only the new Kabaka's voice that spoke as the authority over the kingdom. The royal shrines were built as replicas of the palace with the same layout. You had the separation of the private restricted area, the Ekibira, which was only accessible to a select few of the nobles and officials. And then you had the public area, the Embuga, which was accessible to all. The shrine was considered the gateway between the living and the dead and with the medium acting as a conduit and they would symbolically sit on the Omaliro platform, which was in the middle of the divide of the Embuga and the Ekibira. There were special seasons where there would be rituals performed at these shrines, such as the new moon ceremony. On such occasions, there were specific ways in which the, they, the people, were to observe the rites. One example in particular that came to mind was the case of the Kabaka's fetish, the one that was made with his umbilical cord inside and it was with him throughout his reign. This would then be brought out and displayed to represent him during these rituals. The people though were not restricted to just these ceremonies when it came to going to the royal shrines and in fact were allowed to visit them whenever they saw fit to carry out their own personal rituals and rites. The region of Busiro, which is to the northwest of modern-day Kampala, was home to a number of these royal shrines, with each shrine occupying its own hill. 
These tombs were under the authority of the Mugema, whom we met earlier, and as part of his duties as the father of the king, was also the caretaker of the immediate late Kabaka's shrine. A very quick segue here. Now, although each Kabaka was to have their own special royal shrine as their resting place, there was an exception to this rule. The Kashubi tombs. These tombs hold four Kabaka's remains, but had actually initially only been considered for one person, Kabaka Mutesa I, who died in 1884. The Kasubi tombs were not a single structure or site, but a collection of buildings where royal relics, which included a drum house, the Doga Obukaba, and a gateway house, the Bujabukula, amongst others. They are located at the last Kabaka's capital within the royal enclosure at the top of the hill around four kilometers outside Kampala and span about 35 hectares. The architecture of the tombs is pretty typical of the period's architecture. The main building standing at eight meters tall and 30 meters circumference is called the, I know I'm going to murder this, Muzibuazalanga Mpanga. Translated, it means, it is an unusual person who begets a cock, the cock being the kabaka. Basically then translating to, only a king can bear an heir to the throne. The actual tomb's design was a series of reed rings over a pillar, and the central ring, which was at the very top, was called Ankata, and the two wider rings beneath, beneath it the Katumyo and the Bugwe, which were dyed black and red. The roof's reed frame was attached to the rings and wider and wider rings were added to the frame covered by a thick layer of grass thatch. The construction of the tombs had very clear rules on how builders were to carry themselves in the course of the work. They could not, for example, have sexual relations for a defined period before being on site, Another was around how to build itself with specific clans being tasked with specific pieces. So the Nge clan were tasked with roof work, the Ngo worked on the pillars. It was an honor to work as a skilled laborer and rewards came in various ways, including, these are fun, a get out of jail pass, pardoning from the execution, executioner's reach and to live tax-free. I mean, really, not a bad gig. The royal shrines were built with a plan for them to fall, to collapse. And this was deliberately done as it symbolically showed the waning influence of the Kabaka spirit on the kingdom. Once it had fallen, then a smaller structure was built to house the tomb. And it was this that was more maintained. And with that, Let's see what else was happening in the world before we bring it home. So, in the Middle East, the Ottoman Empire continued to expand, with the Sultan taking the title of Caliph while dealing with the resurgent Persia. In 1504, a period of drought with famine in all of Spain happened. Also in 1504, the foundation of the Sultanate of Sena by Amara Duquas in what is modern-day Sudan. In 1505, Sultan Tregeno built the first Muslim kingdom in Java called Demak in Indonesia. In 
In fact, many other smaller kingdoms were established in other islands to fight against the Portuguese. In 1517, the sweating sickness epidemic happened across Tudor, England. And in 1598, the death of Toyotomi Hideyoshi, known as the unifier of Japan. Right. So as we wind down, I wanted to reflect on something which came up in the study of the civilization and really resonated. And I will paraphrase articles by academics such as Kotak, where he stated that one has to consider the different sources and disciplines when examining history. Others also encourage that we look at history in this broader sense rather than in this very narrow prism, as we have been taught academically. It is so much richer than that, especially when it comes to the African context. So what the Afriwetu take has been is to lean in on the more original and traditional sources as the base and then layer them with the foreign lens that we hear. Insofar as these foreign lands ring true to local actual knowledge. This kingdom proved to be one of those times when I was really able to get into the surrounding stories to make up that very rich tapestry of Buganda. There is so much more out there, which Afriwetu will endeavor to shine a light on in the next two episodes. But before I leave, I wanted to also profusely, profusely apologize to my Buganda people for the mispronunciations, which will definitely continue to happen. And on that note, until next time, Mubarikiwe! Baby,